It's Thursday, February 6th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and I'm alone in the studio at the moment. We are actually taping today's episode early because, as I mentioned on Wednesday's podcast, uh, Thursday and Friday here at The Motley Fool, we're having a two-day event for members who are part of our various services like Motley Fool One, Supernova, Million Dollar Portfolio, and Motley Fool Pro. And I got tapped to moderate some panels during the events and MC on both days. And I didn't want to leave you hanging. I didn't want it to be one of those days where I, or one of those weeks where I say, hey, it's going to be a short week for us. So we've gotten a lot of great email lately. Keep them coming. Radio at fool.com is our email address. We can't answer all of them, but it's, uh, it's always great to at least be able to try. So this is going to be a little experiment. It's our first all email episode. And what makes it a little different is that I'm going to be bringing three people into the studio who have never been on Market Foolery before. We've got more than 300 people who work here at The Motley Fool, a lot of smart people. And I thought this would be a chance to pull in a few voices that you've never heard. And by pull in, I mean twist their arms and say, no, 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 I really need you to come to the studio. So let's get started. Joining me in studio now is Mike Finarelli. He is the Consumer Goods Bureau Chief over at Fool.com. Thanks for being here, man. Oh, thank you very much, Chris. Uh, email from Steve Quinnell in Hawaii. He writes, is there a chain of thrift stores and or secondhand stores that might be a worthy investment? It seems like the trend of shopping only or mostly for used clothing has caught on more broadly across the nation. I, for one, shop almost exclusively at a store called Savers here on Maui. It's a chain, and they even have commercials. There are people on Oahu. Uh, there are, excuse me, there are a couple on Oahu, and there's one near my grandmother's place in Peabody, Massachusetts. Savers, however, is a nonprofit. Do you know of any for-profit chains or any major retailers trying to sneak in on that trend? Uh, it's a great question, and. I'm, it's such a great question, Mike, that first and foremost, I'm going to overlook the fact that he lives in Hawaii mm-hmm. and we're dealing with the polar vortex. <laughs> uh, but you know what? Good for Steve for living in Hawaii. Um, what about that, though? Uh, we've talked before about looking for investments and looking at the world around us and how do I spend my money. So from that standpoint, I think mm-hmm. it's a, that to me is what makes it a great question. Here's a guy saying, well, this is where I shop. Right, absolutely. Are there opportunities? It, it is a great question. Uh, technically, actually, there are no publicly traded thrift companies, believe it or not. Um, of course, now there, there are tons of thrift shops out there that sell, resell, of course, old items, old yep. merchandise, stuff like this. And the interesting thing about the industry is that, you know, it, it really, if you look at it from the outside, it kind of has the potential. You would think that it has the potential to thrive in both good and bad economic times. And right. if, you, if you actually think about that for a second, so in, in times of economic expansion, um, you know, a lot of people are upgrading their merchandise, their clothing, their wardrobe, their electronics, things like this. So they have a lot of their old stuff that they want to get rid of, you know. So, so from a uh, supply standpoint, these resellers or, or thrift shops would actually have a lot of supply, a lot of merchandise to deal with, uh, which would be a plus. Then in bad times, in economic recession, 
you know, uh, the resellers would be able to, to have the potential to capture a wider audience. You know, more people would have, you know, their, their budgets might be strapped, for instance. Um, they're looking for, for better deals, ways to stretch their dollars. So it, it definitely seems like an interesting concept. But I got to be honest with you, when I think in terms of the actual individual businesses, like a thrift shop per se, I'm hard pressed to think of, of any type of moat or competitive advantage that this type of business would actually have to insulate itself from, from competition. It does seem, though, that there would be an opportunity, and if you think about luxury clothing versus more mainstream or even thrift-oriented clothing, it does seem like the opportunity is there for for some for a company that can operate. Old Navy, which is part of, Old Navy, is still part of Gap, Correct. right? Correct. So I don't know how Old Navy is doing. As a standalone business, I don't know if at some point it, if it's doing so well that it makes sense to spin that off as its own business. But just from the standpoint of pure logic, it seems like the opportunity was there, again, assuming you can operate well because you're not going to obviously have – you're going to have to have great operations because you're not going to have – amazing gross margins. Right, right, exactly. And I think that's the the whole point, too. I mean, if you think about this, you're probably typically going to be squeezed on both ends, right, from a, both a, a supply standpoint as well as, as your consumers as well. There's a lot of, you know, haggling in this sort of business, you know, when, when people are, are – you know, those who supply you with their goods are looking to get the most value for their money. And likewise, the, the people that you're selling to are looking to get the most value, too, as well. So it can be a brutal business. And, and going back to the whole idea of not having a moat, not having something to give you that kind of pricing power, I got to imagine it's, it's a really tough squeeze. All right. Great question. Mike, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Joining me in studio now is Kara McDonough. She is the Chief Performance Officer here at The Motley Fool. She is also a member of our Board of Directors, and she has a background in corporate finance and investment. Basically, you're a really important person, and I'm taking you away from your work. So thank you for being here. Uh, uh, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> um, Email question from Mark Reinecker. I hope I'm pronouncing Mark's last name correctly. He writes... How do companies benefit from being public when it comes to having to pay dividends, answer to investors, and buy back stocks? I don't see how it benefits the company, especially when it comes to the relationship between the company and their stock price. What's the deal? Uh, Great question. And of course, given your background in finance, in investment, that's why I wanted to have you in the room today. Before we get into some of the ancillary questions, what is the benefit of, of a company going public? So I think probably the most immediate benefit is the massive access to capital and the massive amounts of capital that you can have access to pretty quickly. Um, But then, of course, with that comes you have to have a way to allocate that capital in the best way. So um, I think that's the the lure for going public for most companies is you have a plan in place that you need a lot of capital for, and that's a pretty quick way to get it. On the flip side, and John Mackey, who is on our board of directors, John Mackey from Whole Foods, uh, Jerry Morrell, the founder of Five Guys. We've we've heard from any number of CEOs who are more than happy to tell you, yeah, it's really not a picnic. And maybe if I had to do it over again, maybe I wouldn't have gone public. Is that is that just sort of natural? Because it seems like the immediate benefit is right there, mm-hmm. particularly when you think about last year and we had more IPOs and right. more money being raised than we had in almost a decade. Yeah, I actually tend to agree with them, which is probably no secret since <laughs> I work for a private company um, and in financial planning and analysis. But yeah, I think um, for a dynamic growth company, you feel a little constrained when you have to meet a quarter 
because things don't always happen perfectly at the end of a quarter, but you've already reported numbers that you were going to do this at the end of a quarter. And what if something happens if you want to change um, and it just so happens to be the wrong month to make that change? So you want to feel free to be able to move and to do what you think is best for your business in the long term, as opposed to trying to meet every single small quarterly end date. And I think that's where they probably feel constrained. That's where I would feel constrained. Um, and that's why I think if you're super fast and dynamic and you want to move and change, it's free to be a private company and and you feel like you have a little bit more control over what you do. And you also have access to capital in private companies as well, just in a different way. Depending on the position, though, is it maybe a little easier in your day-to-day life if you work for a public company? And I'm thinking primarily of people who work in a legal department or people who work in a finance department, mm-hmm. because if you are a public company, there are laws on the books mm-hmm. that probably make it a little easier for you to deal with partners and even your own colleagues. Yeah, I think in some ways you're probably exactly right. Um, we try to, We also have compliance stuff that we have to follow in legal stuff as well. Um, but I think, you know, there are certain rules, you set guidelines, and you do have the freedom in a private company to make policies and and to do things as long as they're legal, you have the freedom to make the policies the way you want to. As you probably in a, a public company, you're held. You have to answer more questions to different people. Uh, but SEC reporting filings are not fun, <laughs> so uh, I, I had to take a class on that. And I, I don't envy anyone who has to do that in their finance department. You're not saying it's just a, a barrel of laughs over there across the river at the SEC? No, no, no. All right, uh, I will let you get back to work. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Chris. Joining me in studio now is Chris Harris. Assistant General Counsel here at The Motley Fool. Thanks for being here, man. Hey, sure thing. Good to be here. Now, for listeners who are wondering, why is a lawyer in the room? Uh, again, we, we go to the email from longtime listener Keith Fredrickson. And I should point out that Keith, in the subject line of his email, said, this is an off-the-wall question. He writes, I've been tossing around the idea of doing a project that involves putting interesting written material to music. Inspired by my own investing interests and background, I thought it would be a fun project and that I could start with the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder letters. I was reminded of this idea when Jason Moser mentioned on a recent episode that the shareholder letters from Berkshire Hathaway, Amazon, and Markel are required reading for investors. So if I were going to pursue a project that involved putting these shareholder letters to music, what advice would you have for me in terms of contacting and seeking permission to do so from Warren Buffett directly? That's why the lawyer's in the room, because I got this email and I thought, this seems legal to me. It seems like it is in the realm of legal. I guess, first off, Chris, probably shouldn't be trying to contact Warren Buffett directly. Probably not Warren. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure somebody out there has a way to get in touch with him. I don't know how to find it. And I don't know if he's going to be particularly pleased if you reach out and, and just say, hey, Warren, can I, can I use you know, your shareholder letters? Call 411 and yeah. ask for you know, the, the Buffett residents in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, am I right, though? This does see, I mean, looking to secure, on the one hand, it's looking to secure someone else's written material for your own creative endeavors. On the other hand, these are public companies. These are public documents. Maybe it's not a legal issue. What do you? Unfortunately, uh, shareholder letters are not public documents. So the things that you file with the SEC, those are public documents. They're on file with the government. If you wanted to read like a 10Q set to music, you absolutely could. Um, but a shareholder letter is actually, it's, it's a written letter from the company to its shareholders. They have a copyright in it. It's their stuff and you need their permission to use it. So in terms of getting permission from the companies. What is the best route to do that sort of thing? 
I think the finding the Chris Harris at each one of these companies and saying you're a lawyer working for Amazon, Markel, and Berkshire Hathaway. Definitely don't talk to the lawyers. Always a bad idea if you end up on the phone with a lawyer at a public company. Just it's not worth your time. <laughs> um, I think generally speaking, investor relations for public companies are incredibly helpful people. Um, they have an awful lot of information about the company, and as long as they're fairly confident you're not going to use it to paint the company in an awful or unjust light, they're incredibly forthcoming about stuff like that. So if in the past we've had to get permission to use uh, logos and things like that, investor relations is a great place to start. Um, I would say if you find, uh, if you just sort of Google for Berkshire Hathaway investor relations number, I'm sure it'll pop up. Give them a call, explain what you're trying to do, and there's a decent to good chance they'll say absolutely or at least tell you who you can contact in the company to get a more formal agreement. Am I correct that at least in the case of Berkshire Hathaway that those letters have been published elsewhere? It's not just that Berkshire Hathaway publishes them every year. Aren't there... I think there's at least one book out there that someone has published, uh, sort of publishing the letters themselves, but also dissecting them and analyzing them and that sort of thing. Yeah. So you can go to the Berkshire Hathaway website and see their letters from like 1983 onward. Um, There's also a guy out there, I think his name, uh, Max Olson, who pretty recently put together an an e-book, you can get it on Amazon, of all of the Berkshire Hathaway letters going back to the first one in 1965. Uh, he, I don't know who he reached out to, but he got permission from Warren to use the letters, edited them all together, and, and has them sort of ready to go. You can get his book on Amazon um, or at BerkshireLetters.com. Are you getting a cut of the books? Is that why you just gave the URL? He's, Max Olson reached out to you and, and said, you know, give me a plug? I'm not saying that Max Olson <laughs> is his real name, but whatever. All right. Thank you for being here, my friend. Uh, as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Music.